0: Three, two, one. Hit <laughs> it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for seriously, a Rosie. You had one job. I, just, I, I can't Jeez. with some of these people. I Put mom, down on your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would you rather? Uh, right, trust me. Take no, my but seriously. That legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by senior space editor at Ars Technica and author of the book, Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX, Eric Berger. We'll be exploring issues, including how Elon Musk demands the impossible from his employees at SpaceX, and more often than not, gets it. The specific challenges associated with creating a commercially developed, privately funded rocket. SpaceX's early struggles with competing with industry titans like Boeing and Lockheed, and launching the Falcon One rocket, and finally the likelihood that SpaceX will be able to get us to Mars within our lifetime—all that and so much more—on another episode of Nervous
1: Habits. Hey,
0: everybody! I um, I'm really excited about this week's episode. Like hundreds of millions of people, I'm someone that's watched Elon Musk's career over the last 15, 20 years with. Great admiration and, and curiosity um, for how, just how he 's achieved just so much unprecedented success in so many different industries. I mean, founder and CEO of of SpaceX, um, disrupting the space industry and telecommunications, and uh, founder and CEO of Tesla um, in the automobile industry and um, affecting fossil fuels and solar energy, founder and CEO of uh, the Boring Company and and Hyperloop um, in the areas of tunneling and infrastructure, Uh, founded OpenAI in AI machine learning, Neuralink, in um, medicine and treatment and, and robotics, um, as well as City, which was acquired by Tesla in the field of, of solar energy. I mean, we can go on and on. I didn't even mention uh, X.com, the precursor to PayPal. Uh, he co-founded Zip2. You know, I think it's rare to find someone on the planet who hasn't heard of Elon Musk. He actually passed uh, Jeff Bezos um, a couple months ago as the richest person in the world with a net worth of more than 185 Billion, uh, Jeff Bezos was the richest person since 2017 with a net worth of 184 billion, and it's easy to sort of see why. I mean, he's uh, he's achieved so much success. He's someone who bets on himself. He put 100 million dollars of his own money into SpaceX early on, which we'll talk quite a bit about in this episode. And in I mean, with with each of these companies, the more that people said that it couldn't be done, the more it just hardened his resolve to actually do it. Uh, so I thought it'd be helpful. Before introducing um, my guest this week, who unfortunately is not Elon Musk, he's actually um, Eric Berger, who, who, who wrote a fascinating book about um, SpaceX in its early years and about Elon Musk. But before I, even, yeah, before I introduce Eric, I thought it'd be helpful to sort of chronicle a little bit about Elon Musk's background um, as we enter this conversation. So, so Elon Musk grew up in South Africa in the early 1970s, and as a child, he was so lost in his daydreams about inventions that his parents uh, ordered a, a test to check his hearing. When um, his parents divorced um, at the age of 10, must develop an interest in computers. So he taught himself how to program, and when he was 12, he sold his first software uh, called Blastar. Um, he, was, he was short, he was introverted, he was bookish in grade school, and was actually bullied until he was 15, and he learned how to defend himself with uh, karate and wrestling. So he, he launched his first company called uh, Zip2 with his brother, Kimball Musk, in 1995. It was an online uh, city guide providing content to the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune. Eventually, it was purchased by uh, the Compact Computer Corporation for $307 million in cash. Um, and he, rather than just sort of you know calling it quits with $300 million in, in his pocket, him and his brother actually decided to use their money to found X.com, which was a financial services company in 1999. So again, sort of shows you how many people listening, if you, you know, sold the company for $300 million, would just either retire or invest, you know, uh, sort of call it quits. But he decided to take that money and build another company, X.com, which was eventually uh, led to the creation of PayPal. And then PayPal was acquired by eBay in in, uh, 2002, and uh, Elon Musk earned... $1.5 $1.5 billion for that because he owned uh, 11% of a PayPal stock. So he had already sold, um, founded X.com and Zip2, and he founded his third company, which was SpaceX in 2002. We're going to talk all about SpaceX in this episode. Uh... And after that, um, he formed Tesla in 2003. So right, right around the same time as SpaceX was was getting off the ground. Um, and Tesla was a company that is dedicated to, to producing mass market electric cars, as well as battery products and solar roofs. And then, while operating Tesla and, Sp- and SpaceX, I want to make sure I get the timeline right. He purchased the company Solar City. Uh, so Tesla purchased it with the effort to promote and advance sustainable energy and products. Um, And then in 2017, launched the Boring Company, a company devoted to boring and building tunnels to reduce uh, city traffic. And then in 2017, he also backed a venture called Neuralink, which intends to create devices to be implanted in the human brain and eventually help people merge with software, which is really an interesting endeavor. We could spend a whole episode fleshing out some of the projects of Neuralink. But you can see that, you know, he's got his his eggs in a lot of different baskets, managing the projects of SpaceX, Tesla, Boring Company, Neuralink, um, sort of on on an everyday basis. And so at some point, I want to, you know, chat about all of these different initiatives, but I wanted to take some time to uh, talk about SpaceX in this episode, because I think of all of his projects, SpaceX is probably the one that Elon Musk is the most passionate about. I mean, his lifelong mission has been, and he said this quite publicly to eventually build um, a space colony on Mars, right? The earth isn't going to be able to sustain human beings forever. And so the reason why he founded SpaceX was to build a city on Mars at, at one point. So, which is why I'm so excited for this conversation with Eric Berger. Um, because we get the chance to really delve into, uh, Elon Musk's lifelong mission, uh, in, in, in this, in this discussion. And you, what, what's interesting about Elon Musk is in addition to being sort of the real life Tony Stark that, that the media portrays him as, he also has uh sort of, uh, a larger than life persona and, and sense of humor. And we talk about this a little in the conversation, but you know, if you look at his Twitter feed, I mean, it's 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 pretty extraordinary. Like how many how many other uh billionaires are, are, are tweeting I mean, I, just just looking at sort of the greatest hits here. He tweeted um let's see, he tweeted Okay, I can't even I can't even read some of this stuff on here. The rumor that I'm secretly creating a zombie acopolis to generate demand for flamethrowers is completely false. That was in January twenty eighth, twenty eighteen. Uh Ramen is so good with a bunch of hearts. Um, Reddit can't tell if this is a fake tweet. Um, I mean, some of it's quite controversial. He was tweeting things about uh, thinking pr- pronouns suck recently. Um, uh, should I subscribe to PewDiePie on the next SpaceX rocket launch? That was from October of 2018. Reddit still seems good. November first, uh, tweeted a lot. He tweets a lot of memes about. Dogecoin, uh, those are those are pretty interesting. So if we go to his, his recent tweets, March 12th, BTC is an anagram of TBC, the boring company. What a coincidence. Um, great band, too bad they broke up, ACDC. Uh, Doge spelled backwards is EGOD. It's the cryptocurrency coin. This is a, actually, it's, it's pretty tame compared to what I'm used to seeing with him. Horses are even self-driving horse versus automobile on March 2nd. Another meme about Dogecoin Video game characters inventory in real life. Uh, it's a meme of some. <laughs> this is actually pretty funny. Uh, from March first, a meme of someone in a video game with uh, a bunch of rifles on their back. Always wondered where exactly your gaming character keeps all the stuff. Do androids dream of electric cars? February twenty sixth. Um, I admit to judging books by their cover. February twenty fifth. I mean, honestly, it's pretty pretty good content. Um, I, at some point, you know, it'd be a dream to ever. Have a conversation with him, but the first thing I would ask him is, does he manage his own Twitter page? Because this is this is pretty pretty incredible content, and he has close to fifty million uh, followers on Twitter. But anyway, uh, I mean, we could we could talk about his his Twitter persona all day, but um, I do want to get to my conversation with with Eric Berger um, because I, I think that it reveals a lot of uh, really fascinating insights on not just um, Elon Musk, but also SpaceX in its early years, its goals, and how exactly it managed to be the first private company to ever launch a rocket into orbit, uh, which was really remarkable. So so Eric Berger is the senior space editor of Ars, uh, Ars Technica, covering everything from astronomy to private space to wonky NASA policy. And he's the author of the book, Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX. Eric has an astronomy degree from the University of Texas and a master's in journalism from the University of Missouri. He previously worked at the Houston Chronicle for 17 years, where the paper was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 2009 for his coverage of Hurricane Ike. A certified meteorologist Eric founded Space City Weather and lives in Houston. I should have asked him about uh, meteorology. I, I didn't even. <laughs> I mean, we had so much to talk about with uh, with aero's face. I didn't, didn't even didn't even get to, to ask him about that. But um, Eric, I mean, is a really brilliant guy, and and uh, I I tried. Uh, you know, I, I tried as best I could to sort of keep up with the technical components. Because I mean, you'll hear in this conversation a lot of the the struggles that uh, SpaceX faced with ha- launching the Falcon One into space had to do with the liquid combustion of the engine and the separation of the rockets between phases two and three and uh eric did a nice job sort of i guess breaking it down for uh the general audience but i'll admit i was lost (laughs) i was lost at certain points um so definitely don't don't feel don't feel that if if um if sort of some of the technical components of the conversation are difficult to follow uh, that being said, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eric Berger. Nervous Habits Podcast is sponsored by Skillshare. Think about it for a moment. When was the last time that you learned a new skill? Like a real skill that you can use use in your everyday life, probably high school or maybe college. You know, it's been a while and there's a lot of reasons for that. But luckily there's Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. Now for me, I love creative writing. I'm someone who at the end of a long day, I love to, you know, lay out my legal notepad and just jot out my ideas and I'm interested in taking this class called Going Viral, write, film, and make content that people share with comedian uh, and influencer, Matt Bellasse. And he talks about really you know, how to create hit online content um, that people will read and watch and follow and, and share and retweet and favorite. So I'm excited to take that 70-minute uh, class and get better at my uh, content creation online and also at my creative writing. And you guys can gain access to all of this too because our friends at Skillshare are actually offering my listeners a free trial of premium membership by going to Skillshare.com slash Nervous Habits. That's Skillshare.com slash Nervous Habits. There's really no better feeling than picking up a new skill. I talk about it all the time on the podcast. The Kaiser in principle and getting 1% better every single day at something, it really starts with taking a couple minutes, going to this, this Skillshare website, and seeing you know what, what interests you. I mean, they have classes in animation, art, web development, marketing, photography, graphic design, entrepreneurship, you name it. Um, so check that out, Skillshare.com slash Nervous Habits. And now back to the show. Eric Berger, welcome to Nervous Habits Podcast.
1: Hey, super, super happy to be here.
0: It's great to have you on. I, I enjoyed reading your book uh, a, a lot and, and excited to to chat with you about your um observations and and you know what, what you discovered about the inner workings of SpaceX and Elon Musk. But I guess to start, uh just you know, I think listeners would be curious to get a sense for what made you want to write a book about space and, and how much did you know about SpaceX going into this?
1: So I have written as a journalist about space from for almost two decades and you know, SpaceX had had always been on my radar as, as an interesting company, obviously doing interesting things. Um, and and Elon Musk is a colorful personality, for sure. It was, you know, two things that really sparked my interest in this. First of all, in, in 2016, the first time they landed a first-stage Falcon 9 rocket on a drone ship, you know, that was really incredible engineering feat. And that made me take notice. And then a couple of years later, they launched the Falcon Heavy rocket for the first time. And that was both extremely impressive to see going up because you had 27 engines firing simultaneously and it was really bright. Um, it was it was almost too bright to watch. Um, it was like kind of staring at the sun as it launched and then seeing the side boosters come back there in Florida was, was impressive. And it was at that point that I realized that it wasn't just a really interesting company. This was probably the transformative company of my lifetime Mm -hmm. in space, at least. And so I was like, well, I wonder where they really came from. And I wonder why they succeeded because there had been a lot of other companies that had tried to do what they had done and had failed.
0: And you mentioned a couple, a couple of those uh, companies in the book, I think Kissler was one um, and there were a couple others but uh, the book, so the book in terms of methodology includes a ton of interesting anecdotes, stories from inside SpaceX. How exactly did you, um, you know, get access to to, to to all this information? What was your process like?
1: So I I had known Elon for several years, and, and he had known of my work, and we'd met a couple of times. And you know, he does not hold journalists in the highest regard. I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, He's, he's very prickly about criticism, especially that which he thinks is is unfair. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd written a lot about SpaceX and how they were disrupting the space industry. And, you know, I'd been pretty critical of what NASA was trying to do with its deep space exploration program. And I, I don't, we don't need to go into that on this podcast, but suffice to say, they had taken a big government approach that really wasn't getting anywhere. And so he respected, I think the the work I'd done to sort of put what SpaceX and other new space companies were trying to do in a broader perspective. Um, And so when I approached him in, uh, in the spring of 2019, I just basically said, I think there's a heck of a story to be told about the Falcon one rocket um, and how SpaceX, you know, almost died several times, but ultimately survived. And he said, okay. Um, And, you know, from there it was, Um, basically he said, you know, you should come and talk to everyone you want to, and everyone should talk to you. And so, you know, he, he made time for me and by, you know, sort of signaling to his employees, but more importantly, former employees that, that, you know, he was sort of supportive of the project, not monetarily. And he didn't have any kind of editorial say, but he sort of trusted me to tell the story. And that was the one thing he told me. He's he's like, be accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it, I was able to talk to both people who were, you know, still at SpaceX who'd worked on the Falcon One, and this is a period from 2002 primarily to 2008, mm-hmm. and as well as former employees who maybe hadn't talked before because, you know, they out of respect for Elon or you don't really want to cross him, you know, there was there had been some reluctance to talk. About those days,
0: yeah. And it's interesting. Uh, We mentioned before uh, we started recording. I've I've read another uh, Elon Musk bio by Ashley Vance, the Tesla, SpaceX, and Quest for a Fantastic Future um, depiction, which which was also a a really incredible uh, venture. And I think that there's you alluded to this. There's a certain way that he's depicted in the media. So how how does your uh, how do your interactions with him, or, or how does your perception of him, sort of differ from what folks listening might think about Elon Musk?
1: well you know he's not he, he is a lot of different things and has a lot of different faces i guess um and i would say that he is both you know this titan of industry this international celebrity one of the world's richest people you know he's he's tall he's he's imposing um so like the caricature of him as a tony stark type persona hmm. is not entirely missed the mark i mean it, in some respects that is that is him but he's also like this kind of awkward nerdy guy mm. who is most at home talking about like the technical details of rockets or you know why a battery-powered you know vehicle is better than an internal combustion engine or you know optimal design of factories <laughs> um so, you know, I got to see, you know, as I spent some time with him, I got to see that side of him as he became more comfortable around me and I became more comfortable around him. Um, that you know, that side emerged. Um and I also got to see him, you know, interacting with his kids for a bit to sort of see that like to to him he's just dad, you know. He's not Elon Musk the the great or whatever. <laughs>
0: it it's so interesting i mean uh folks who who maybe are only familiar with one side of him watch his interviews on like joe rogan or, or watch you know follow his twitter memes and uh he is you know very eccentric he does have uh a, a a pretty you know um intense sense of humor and there were a lot of anecdotes in the book that that i felt eric really drew that out like one of the ones i enjoyed um was the pop tart incident that you wrote about i don't know if you want to share that with listeners
1: sure so um he was in in the in the fall of 2002 that he started SpaceX in in May of 2002 and so it was a, you know there's still just a handful of people working there and and they were trying to figure out okay what parts of this Falcon 1 rocket are we going to build in house and what parts are we going to have to go buy and so they were making a trip um, in 2002, uh, to Wisconsin, to a couple of, of manufacturing facilities up there, um, they did ultimately end up buying their tanks from Spincraft in Wisconsin for the Falcon One. But anyway, they, they were staying in a Holiday Inn Express, and Chris Thompson, who was the second employee of, of SpaceX after Tom Mueller, told me the story of he and another employee were had gotten down to the um, the little breakfast there, you know, the the breakfast bars and Hampton Inns and mm-hmm. Holiday Inn Expresses. And, you, you know, everyone's everyone's been there, right? Where you get your little styrofoam plate and, you know, look around and see what there is to eat. And he Chris Thompson said he and the other employee had gotten down there at 6 a.m. because they wanted to be there before Elon to show their dedication um, to the cause. And he said a little after 6, Elon comes down and is looking around the breakfast bar and sees Pop-Tarts. And apparently had his you know, at that time, I guess he'd lived in the United States for, you know, seven, eight, nine years, but apparently he was not familiar with Pop-Tarts because Thompson said he he sort of stared at it like it was the monolith, base um, <laughs> Odyssey, and and then, <laughs> they understood apparently I guess they were next to the toaster realized that they were best eaten toasted so he puts them in the toaster and pushes it down and waits for them to come up but he had you know mistakenly put them in horizontally and so when the toaster popped up he uh you know he he had to reach in there to pull them out and he, he burned his hands and his <laughs> quote it, or sort of his uh, ejection at that point was fuck it burns and he just repeated that several <laughs> times in the you know in this in this midwestern holiday and express in, in 2002 and it, it mortified the ladies at the front desk and just it just left quite an impression so, you know, I tried to pepper the book with with stories like that to, mm-hmm. to sort of bring to life him as both a person and as like the leader of SpaceX um, and sort of how he interacted with his employees. Because, I mean, on uh,
0: that point of him being a, a per- person, Eric, I mean, there are people who think he's a robot. That's actually a, a popular um, caricature of him. But I think it's so relatable to have the world's richest man, the founder of several billion dollar companies one of the smartest people alive just struggling <laughs> to put a pop tart in. Um, but I, you know, I, I think there's, there's something to his public persona. I, I don't know if you follow sort of um, some of his, his extracurricular activities insofar as like he made a, a song about Harambe. Do you know the, the gorilla he made like a yeah. remix about him. And then he also, he posts things about Dogecoin in the, in, in terms of investing. So there's a lot of different, different dimensions to him.
1: Yeah. He, you know, I think he uses Twitter as a release, um, and and he's, he's on it because he enjoys it I mean, it was very funny A couple of years ago um, He apparently found out That SpaceX was still on Facebook And this was when the Facebook There was real effort to sort of get people Off Facebook for various reasons And he tweeted He said, just found out SpaceX still has a Facebook page You know, it will be deleted immediately <laughs> that's, <laughs> um, um,
0: that's amazing, that's not surprising
1: Uh, So, I mean, he, but like, he he does have this extraordinarily stressful life, right? I mean, he's, he's dealing with Tesla and SpaceX and other businesses and, you know, has, has just an an insane amount of pressure on his schedule. Mm. Um, And is, is sort of on one hand tasked with making these very important business decisions, but he's also like, no bullshit. He is like, a kick-ass engineer in the sense that he's in there making the hard, most technical decisions about rockets. Like I have, I, I got to sit in on some of these meetings and like watch and it wasn't a show. It's like they were coming to him and asking him for help on things. Um, so it was, you know, he, he's got a lot, he's got a lot on his mind. I think he just goes to Twitter to mm-hmm. kind of de-stress and it sometimes gets him in trouble but it's also a nice window into his his sense of humor when he does memes and things like that because he legitimately yeah, yeah. thinks those are funny.
0: <laughs> there was one uh, one time in particular where he had tweeted something about um, I forgot what it was. it was. It was like some hot button political issue, and his wife had responded like like I'm worried about you. Like like c- c- you know uh, c- come upstairs or something or answer your phone. Um, which is it, you know it, it, it's amusing, but I'd be remiss, Eric, if I didn't also mention he is a controversial figure to work with, and in the book you do talk about how he alienated some of his top lieutenants by blaming them for the failures of the first few attempted Falcon one flights. And we're going to talk about those later on, but um, you know, w- what is, what is sort of that side of him where working with him can sometimes be troubling for when, when things don't go, don't go well.
1: Yeah. So in the book, I, I focused on 10 or 12 key people at SpaceX and kind of told the story of the company's rise through their stories. And it, it, I included an epilogue because I thought it was important to show what had happened to them in the last decade or so since the first successful launch of the Falcon one. And a lot of them did get burned out and, you know, it, they had, they had given up all of their time with their families. Um, you know had not seen their kids grown up, grow up. And so, I mean, it, it, it absolutely takes a toll. The interesting thing about what, you know, what happens at SpaceX, I think, is the majority of people he hires are, you know, young men and women who are just out of college, you know, the best engineering schools in the country or, or in graduate school. So they're generally in their early to mid 20s. And they go to SpaceX, and none of them are naive. I mean, they all understand that they're going there to completely, you know, work their tails off. Like Flo Lee, she, she, she was hired in 2003 for she was in, she was in grad school at Stanford and she had this, she told me she had this wonderful social life up there. And, you know, she decided ultimately to take the plunge and go work for SpaceX because it offered hands-on engineering, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And she, she, you know, recounted how as she was driving into, you know, Los Angeles, into the Valley for the first time from San Francisco and moving down to SpaceX and she started crying because she realized that, you know, she didn't know anybody in Los Angeles And, you know, all of her social life was back in San Francisco. And then she told me a couple months later, you know, later in 2003, that it didn't matter because her whole life was SpaceX and she'd made good friends there and had just decided to give her all to the company. Mm -hmm. And so there really was no, hardly any social life outside of that. Um, And so it was, it was really a trade, right? You would, if you were young and brilliant and hardworking, you would go to SpaceX and sort of give that company the best years of your life. Um, and and believe me, Elon Musk is, is extremely demanding. You know, he, he tells, he gives his people almost impossible goals, mm-hmm. tells them to go fast and then tells them to go faster. But they got something out of it too. Um, they got hands-on experience building rockets. You know, they weren't sitting in committee meetings. You know, I can guarantee you that the, over the last year, the SpaceX engineers haven't been sitting on endless Zoom calls, right? <laughs> They've been... They've been working on the hardware. And so you go there and you get a chance to build something that's going to fly within a year or two. Um, and it's it's not just going to fly. It's not going to be like fulfilling a government contract. Typically, it's going to be like doing something incredible, like, you know, going up and landing on a, on a, on a, on a drone ship or, you know, the Starship vehicle that they're building to one day go to Mars. Um, I mean, you, you would have the chance to tell your grandkids one day that you worked on that. Um, and that's every bit as important, if not more so than the, than the Saturn V that was, you know, the, the backbone of the Apollo program. And or I mean, it's just you got what you got out of it was was the chance to do something amazing and great that there really wasn't elsewhere in the space industry.
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I think I think that 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 part of the narrative sort of gets lost when people talk about how demanding, the, you know, the, the, the work life balance is and how tough it is potentially to work with with Elon Musk, Um, there is certainly, uh, you know, the benefit of being part of something bigger than yourself. I mean, um, we'll talk about uh, Falcon 1 reaching orbit and and what the people involved in that project experienced. Now, you alluded, Eric, a minute ago, you alluded to uh, the hiring process at SpaceX. I found this really interesting in the book. You talked about how early on in the company, Elon Musk made it a priority to personally meet with every single person the company hired through the first
1: 3,000 employees. That sounds crazy in today's world. Yeah, and not just me to actually interview them. Mm. Um, and, you know, he he prides himself, and I think rightly so, on his ability to judge, you know, whether someone is a good engineer um, and not just, not just someone who's a good engineer, but then is willing to, to, to work you know, as we talked about super hard on, on projects. Um, and so, you know, he has this method where he will, you know, during the course of an interview oftentimes try to throw a subject off kilter to see how they'll react or to make them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it's not hard because for him, because as I said, he's, he's a pretty intimidating person. Um, and especially for like, you know, new hires or younger hires, I mean, this is Elon Musk you're sitting down across the table from, you know, he's, he's also like, you know, there's just no room for small talk or, or messing around typically. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he, he, he asks questions like you know, they're called riddles, engineering riddles, but they're basically questions that, you know, he doesn't want to know what, you know, he wants to know whether you can think. And like, what can you, can you,
0: can you give an example of one maybe?
1: Well, um, like one example is, you know, you're on the earth at some, you're at some point on the earth and let me make sure I get this right. You're at some point on earth and you walk South one mile, Mm -hmm. you turn to the West and walk one mile and then you walk one mile North. Um, and you're at the same spot you started, where, where did you start or where are you? And the answer to that is the, is the North pole. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's questions like that, and he sort of like he he gets to see your thinking process r- in real time, and you know it's 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 like I said he can he, it, he uses that to ferret out the people that he doesn't think will be successful, and mm-hmm. he's very good at that, um, and and it, it speaks it speaks to the fact that the things they're doing and achieving in space are directly attributable to the quality of the minds who are sitting around those tables. Sort of thinking about those things, doing the calculations, and and you know designing the hardware. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I mean it. It it's definitely shows a lot of uh, on his part a lot of dedication to making sure the team um, that he constructs is is most apt to be able to meet those impossible demands that, that he sets up. I, I want to take a step back for listeners that aren't super familiar with SpaceX. Mm-hmm. What exactly, if you can almost. Like put it in fifteen words or less. What exactly does SpaceX do? What what's what's their mission statement? What's their ultimate goal?
1: SpaceX builds low cost rockets that increase access to space with the ultimate goal of one day sending humans to Mars and settling <laughs> that planet.
0: F- fantastic. Um, but. Because I think I think uh, a lot of listeners maybe have heard of SpaceX, but they weren't they weren't super familiar with with what they were sending rockets into space to do. Um, and you had written in the book about how before SpaceX came into existence, there were tons of deficiencies in the launch industry, uh, especially for for NASA and, and you know sort of the expenses that went into that. Can you flesh that out for listeners?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you think about it, this is back in the early two thousands. I mean, that was there was this, we'd gone through this huge dot com. Bubble but the the trajectory was clear, right? The banking industry was going online. There was the beginning of the push to take medical records online. education you, know, you were starting to see online colleges, um, and so there was this, this big push across a lot of different industries to find newer ways, um, better ways to do things and At that time, the launch industry was going backwards, especially in the United States. Um, you know, they were still, we were relying on decades old technology to get most of our satellites into space, especially the U.S. military. And like if if you were DirecTV or someone like that, and you wanted to get, you know, your satellite out to geostationary orbit, you didn't go to a U.S. rocket company, you went to Europe or Mm -hmm. to Russia um, because they had the most reliable rockets at the best prices. And so, so one of the reasons that Musk ultimately decided to get in the industry was that he thought it was ripe for disruption. And the other reason was, you know, he, he, founded SpaceX, no kidding with the goal of settling Mars one day. And he initially thought NASA would be up for that job, but then he looked at the companies that NASA was using for its, its, its space program. And it was Lockheed and Boeing, Mm -hmm. And and the quote I think I use in the book is that, you know, he says those horses were lame. You know, NASA was never going to get out of the barn. And what he meant by that is it was so expensive to launch things into orbit. There was no way that we were ever going to get enough mass there to to send a human mission to Mars. And the moon even was challenging. And, And he's been right. I mean, NASA's ability to, you know, get stuff into orbit when it builds its own rockets, the price has only gone up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was another key reason why he founded SpaceX. And the first step was to literally see if a private company could, you know, develop a rocket, build it mostly in-house, and lower the cost. And when they came out with the Falcon 1 rocket, you know, the list price on that was, was $6 million. Mm-hmm. And the only comparable commercial rocket in the world costs almost $30 million so five times as much so he he succeeded and he's continued to succeed with that goal of lowering the cost of access to space since the beginning
0: definitely yeah yeah and and i i i want to i want to um circle back to the uh, falcon 1 uh, sort of the cost in in constructing that in a moment but you know uh sort of uh, in response to the first part of of your answer when Elon Musk decided that he wanted to start his own space company, you mentioned in the book that he gathered 15, 20 aerospace engineers and he made a declaration of his goal to settle Mars and, you know, build a private company to rival NASA. And nearly all of them told him it wasn't possible. Uh so so I mean, why why didn't people that he worked with sort of think this this was feasible back when he began SpaceX?
1: Well, a lot of those people in the industry certainly didn't. He asked, he went to five people at the beginning to, to ask them to join him as founding employees. And only two of them did. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he found, I mean, there were, if you worked in the space industry at that time, you understood the name of the game. I mean, it was, it was the big companies, Lockheed Boeing, Northrop TRW. I mean, they would, they were all competing for, for launch contracts from the U S military, satellite contracts from the military, you know, satellite contracts and launch contracts from NASA. And they would all bid high and they would all, you know, it would take a long time to get your project done. But you know, all of those contracts when they were awarded were paid out on a cost plus basis. So if you you won a contract, you know, you got paid whether you know it took you five years or 10 years, and you never lost money because you got whatever your expenses were plus 15% or 10%. And that's so why it was called cost plus. And so there was not a whole lot of incentive in the industry to go fast or to be innovative outside of, you know, you were competing with a handful of other large defense contractors for those for those on bidding for, for contracts. Mm. And so, you know, he, he took the opposite approach um, to really try to shake things up. And it's crazy to think about. I mean, because
0: nowadays SpaceX is a billion dollar company. But back then, to your point, they were an outsider in the aerospace industry, the proverbial David uh, David to the Goliath of the NASAs and the Boeings and Lockheed Mart- Martins. And you talk about how in order to compete with these companies, SpaceX had to resort to uh, handling these issues in the courtroom. And and as a, as a law student, I found some of those, um, you know, some of those issues pretty interesting.
1: Right. So, so one thing about Musk is if he feels like he's been done wrong or been treated unfairly, or if the playing field isn't level, that really gets under his skin. Mm-hmm. Um, because what he says, what he will say is he just wants a chance to compete. And if it's a level playing field, SpaceX is going to win every time. I mean, I think that's largely true in the sense that, you know, they had to, they, the field was tilted against sort of new entrants in the space business. Um, and so he didn't shirk away from that. He, he, when he felt like he'd been done wrong, he challenged it. So within the first three years of the company's existence, before they had even attempted to launch a rocket, you know, they had sued their, their three biggest competitors, Northrop, Lockheed and Boeing. They'd sued the U S department of defense. They'd protested a NASA contractor. I mean, uh, excuse me, a NASA contract. So these are like the biggest competitors and their most important customers. And he's, you know, gone after them all in those first three years and attempt to try to make the playing field more level. He didn't win them all. Um, He didn't win that many, but he probably won the most important one, which was NASA in, in 2004 or five, gave a contract to kisser aerospace to deliver cargo to the space station. And they gave that without any kind of open competition. Um, And, Musk protested that against the wishes of Gwen Shotwell, um, who was his vice president of, of sales at the time. Mm. Um, she said, I wouldn't have done it, um, but, but by protesting it, he ultimately got NASA to reopen that competition and mm-hmm. SpaceX won a piece of that. And, and the operational phase of that contract, which was awarded at the end of 2008, ultimately is what saves SpaceX from financial ruin. So if he hadn't taken that step three or four years earlier, you know, the company was doomed and he somehow saw that future and, and, and took that step. It's pretty remarkable actually.
0: Yeah. And and it's interesting uh, t- to your point, they didn't win all of the legal battles. I, I actually found it surprising because some of the some of the issues um, sounded sounded like they had a great case, particularly um, the allegations that Boeing and Lockheed, uh, the merger, violated antitrust laws and they had any competitive practices. You know, I was surprised that SpaceX lost that battle. But as you said, you know, where it counted, they were able to um, to triumph. Government relations, Eric, were, were crucial to SpaceX early on. Why is it so important to a private space company that they have a good relationship with uh, agencies and
1: divisions of the U.S. government? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's essential on a number of fronts. And that was one area where, where Musk didn't have any experience at all coming from PayPal and, and Silicon Valley. And that's where he got fortunate um, in, in finding Gwen Shotwell, who had worked in the space industry for about a decade and had a lot of those relationships from from her time in a small company called Microcosm. And so, you know, when you want to launch a rocket, first of all, you need to find a place to launch it from. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the U S then is now the majority of those facilities are fall under the jurisdiction of either the U S air force or the army, um, the mi- old missile ranges basically. So you've got to, you've got to be able to work with the, the DOD, the department of defense for that. And then, it's There are regulatory issues as well um, in terms of getting permission to launch um, from the FAA. You have to have communications permission from the FCC. But probably most significantly, you can think about it if you're a rocket company, there, there are three baskets of money that you can try to get your hands into in terms of launch contracts. There is commercial satellites. So private company wants to put up an Earth-observing satellite or telecommunications or what have you. And that's about a third of the pie. Then there are NASA launch contracts, both for science missions, and then later for cargo missions and, and even crew missions, the international space station. And then there are um, military satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a, you know, the, the, the air force is responsible. Well, it's now the space force back then it was the air <laughs> force. Um, you know, is responsible for launching everything from, from micro satellites to, you know, these national reconnaissance office satellites that are valued in, in billions of dollars. And so they're, they're charged with finding a safe ride to space. And so if you want to do business with the government, I mean, if you want to do business as a rock company, a lot of your funding is ultimately going to come from the government. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, in addition to regulatory and range issues, it just makes good business sense to have those relationships.
0: So, to everyone listening, if if somehow you want to start your own space company and you have a place to launch rockets, there's a lot of groups. To Eric's point, that you need to get permission from the the FCC, um, as well as the FAA, uh, and then uh, actually purchasing the contract. So it sounds like um, you know SpaceX was fortunate that they found someone to be an ambassador in that respect. So the first major project of SpaceX was actually designing uh, the Falcon 1 rocket that you mentioned earlier. For people who aren't familiar with the aerospace industry, how was the Falcon 1 different from the rockets that NASA was spending, uh, sending to space?
1: So it was different in a couple of ways. First of all, and most importantly, it was it was purely commercially developed. By that, I mean it was privately funded. So you didn't have you didn't have the government come along to uh, a contractor and say, well, we have a need for such and such a size of rocket that can carry such and such a size to orbit and we'll pay you, you know, $500 million to, to develop it. Right. So this was Musk and SpaceX coming along and say, well, we think there's a market demand for this vehicle. And so we're going to, we're going to build it ourselves, how we think it ought to be. And, and then we think we'll be able to sell enough launch contracts to make it profitable. And so the commercial development of it was the novel thing. It was also novel in that it was fairly small. Um, it could lift about a thousand pounds to low Earth orbit, whereas a lot of the rockets were more powerful um, back then. But, you know, as a small company starting out, you probably didn't want to do something too bigger than the Falcon 1 because even that was, was pretty ambitious. And because it was privately developed, you know, you had to be really watchful of money. Mm-hmm. And so one of the early employees, Hans Koenigseman, you know, explained it to me is one of the attractions for him in coming to SpaceX was trying to build a rocket, you know, with 100 or 200 people as opposed to 10,000 people. Right. Or could you buy a computer for the onboard avionics system. So this, you know, helps a rocket fly because it's all automated. Could you, could you adapt an off the shelf computer that costs a few thousand dollars versus a custom computer from, from a contractor that would cost a million dollars or more. Um, So that was another difference. And then finally, it was the first time a private company had ever tried to build a liquid-fueled rocket. And so this is, it was ran on kerosene and and chilled liquid oxygen as its propellants. Mm. And that's such a thing had never been privately developed before. So
0: in terms of the cost, uh, you mentioned, I think you mentioned $6 million. So how much did, how much would this rocket have cost if it were built by NASA or the government compared to how much did uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX want it to be built for?
1: Yeah, so Elon put $100 million into the company, mm-hmm. and that was that was about going to supposed to cover the development of the Falcon One. Um, it's impossible to say what it would have cost the government, mm-hmm. like if DARPA or NASA said we want this kind of a capability, how much a how much a bid would have come back for, um, but. There is one data point that I think is, is illustrative and that's with the Falcon nine capability. This was a, this is a much bigger version than the Falcon one. I mean, it's not too hard to keep track of the Falcon one had one Merlin engine. The Falcon nine had nine. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a much more powerful and bigger rocket. Um, After SpaceX developed that for NASA's commercial cargo program, the space agency did an analysis and found that if NASA had done that through traditional contracting means, it would have cost the space agency four to 10 times as much. Wow. So they were, I mean, they were, they were doing it for less, but how much less than, than another company would have done. I don't, I don't know.
0: So you just mentioned the, the Merlin engine. And one of the first things you wrote that the SpaceX team tackled was the engine. Why, in layman' term, layman's terms, is it important to build a good engine? And, and what exactly was the Merlin engine?
1: So, I mean, the, the rocket engine is the heart of the vehicle. It's the most difficult, complex part. Um, it, it's where, you know, it's the, the heart of it is a, a chamber where your propellants meet and combust, and you channel that out the back through a nozzle, and that pushes the vehicle forward it's extraordinarily complex to manage these fluids because the liquid oxygen is several hundred degrees below freezing. Um, And, you know, the combustion temperatures are well above the temperature needed to melt aluminum or other metals. And so you have to somehow cool your engine chamber and, you know, you have to manage this all efficiently and so forth. So it's just the most difficult part of any rocket is the engine. And so that's where you start.
0: Most of the book is devoted to chronicling the attempts to actually launch the Falcon one. And when you talk about the biggest hurdle to launching the Falcon and why it ended up taking so many attempts to get it right, is it the, that they couldn't perfect the engine or does it more have to do with the, with the different stages of launching that, that was problematic for them?
1: Well, it's kind of all of the above, you know, you, you build your engine, you test it a lot. Okay. And then you get to the point where you're confident of it about it. But then you have to integrate it, right? You have to integrate it with the actual fuel tanks on the rocket. You have you have to integrate that first stage with an upper stage. You know, the first stage takes the the the, spa- the payload up to space, but you're not in orbit yet. Mm-hmm. And so the second stage kind of takes that in the vacuum and pushes it further and, and, and inserts it into orbit. And so both of these stages have to work together. And it's you know the, the engine is complex enough, but then it has to interface with the entire vehicle. You have to have a system to release the satellite. Um, when it gets into space, you have to have all the software that controls this flight. And so it's this massive pros- process to integrate all of that mm-hmm. into a single vehicle. And so as you progressively put more and more of the rocket together, you do more tests and you find more problems. Um, and you know, there's only so much you can test on the ground. You can't test the second stage on the ground that well, because it's hard to simulate it firing in a vacuum, that kind of thing.
0: In, in, in reading the book, it's interesting to me because I, I, at one point, Tim Buzza noted that they always anticipating needing, they always anticipated needing three, uh, flights to get into orbit. Right. Right. Um, and part of that, it sounded like was, uh, that it was difficult to anticipate, even when it was close to orbit, whether or not it would end up coming back down or it would break
1: through. So why was that the case? So, you know, there's there's a system of gates you have to cross through to get your rocket to orbit. And like the first one, the very first one, is you have to ignite the in- engine successfully. And that happens on the ground. And you may think, well, that's that's not too hard. But it actually is to like sort of ignite an engine precisely when you want it in a controlled manner is, is difficult. And so then, then the engine ignites and your rocket lifts off the ground. And then once it gets off the ground, you know, it has to go through this area of, of maximum, it's called max Q, it's this maximum dynamic pressure, it's basically the point in which the rocket is continuing to accelerate. And the atmosphere is still pretty thick. And so there's this maximum dynamic pressure. And then as the rocket goes higher and faster, the atmosphere thins. So that becomes less of an issue. Okay. So you launch, you ignite the engine, you launch, you go through max Q. And then you have to, then you have to, then the first stage basically runs out of fuel. It burns all of its propellant and it has to separate successfully from the second stage. OK, so then the first stage falls away and the second stage waits a bit and then its engine has to ignite. So this is in a vacuum. So and it's a whole different process of igniting your second stage engine. And then that has to burn for several minutes successfully. And then that has then, then you have to have a fairing system, the top of the rocket that breaks away and, and releases the satellite. So, you, you know, you, you've got several steps you've got to get through. And some of those steps are very difficult to test on the ground. And so you only really find the problems on a system, you know, in, during a launch. Now, now you can find those problems, right? You can spend like years and years and years running simulations and tests and simulations and tests before you ever put the rocket together. But that takes a lot of time and that costs a lot of money and that's SpaceX didn't have time or money. So they, mm. they more opted to fly and find the problems and fix them and fly again.
0: That's actually really helpful. Thanks for, thanks for going through that. I don't want to get, you know, too much onto the weeds of engineering for fear of sort of losing our audience, but it seems like part of the issue, um, Eric, in reading the book was that the rocket needed to limit its overall mass. So where does, where does that fit into the equation of, of what you just described?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, most of, most of the weight on a rocket is not in the engine. It's not in the structure it's in the propellant. Um, And so you want to be very efficient in how you use that propellant. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, again, goes into the complexity of the engine we talked about, you know, a fuel efficient Toyota Prius gets you a lot more mileage than a Ford F-150, but a Ford F-150 gives you a lot more pulling power than a Toyota Prius. So how do you balance all of that? Um, And then, you know, every pound you know, that you're putting on your first stage and propellant because you have a lower rocket efficiency, engine efficiency, or because you need a thicker structural walls is propellant lost on the payload. And and that's what it's ultimately all about, right? How big of a satellite can you get into space for what price? And, you know, a fully fueled Falcon one rocket, you know, weighed something on the order of 60,000 pounds. And if you were lucky, it could get 500 or a thousand pounds into orbit. So it's like 60 or 70 or 80 to one in terms of the mass, of the rocket versus the actual payload, the mass fraction that you're actually putting into space. And so it, mass is just at an absolute premium because every pound that you're, you're adding or giving up, you're losing that on the payload. And that's what ultimately what you're trying to accomplish.
0: Right, right, and that's why, um, like you wrote, part of the process was sort of stripping out like the non-essential parts of the rocket to to, to limit the mass. So you know, uh, the Falcon One attempted to to um, to reach orbit three times, and you note that for the third on the third flight, this was really interesting. A single line of code uh, was responsible for derailing the flight. So so how did that happen?
1: Right. So we were talking earlier about how there are these different stages in getting to orbit and engine ignition going through max Q and then stage separation through when the first stage falls away. So what happened was, they put a different engine on the third flight, a better engine, one that ultimately could be reusable, um, in which they they did ultimately reuse, but not in the Falcon one program. And so the rocket goes up the first stage burns like a champ, and it gets to stage selection. And the rockets the first stage begins to fall away from the second stage, and then there was a little bit of residual fuel in that first stage engine, and it just burned a little bit longer than than they expected. and so they the, the, the they, they commanded the engine, it shut off, and then they then they separated the rocket, but then the engine fired again a little bit, so the first stage bumped into the second stage. Mm. and so literally. And that knocked the second stage off course, and that was the end of the mission. Um, so literally all they needed to do instead of instead of having a one-second time between when they shut the first en- stage engine down and then command a separation, they just needed to change that from one second to five seconds. Hmm. And then the fact that the engine might have fired a little bit more wouldn't have mattered because the second stage would have... You know, the first stage would have fallen far enough away that it wouldn't have mattered. Um, so that was that was literally... When they went from the third flight to the fourth flight, the only thing they changed.
0: And how much time uh, was in between each of these first three launches? Was it every year? Was it every other year?
1: Right. So the first launch was in March of 2006. Mm -hmm. And there they got to the point where they ignited the engine, but there was also a fuel leak. And so it only, it only rose for about 30 seconds before the rocket crashed back into the island that they were launching from. The second flight felt like real progress because, the first stage burned fine, stage separation went great. The second stage ignition came on and it you know, was flying through space for a couple minutes. And then there was a problem with the fuel. It started sloshing around uncontrollably and, and that ultimately sent the vehicle. But they got really close to orbit. And so they were very confident in their third flight. So the, the, the second flight was about a year later. It was in March of 2007. Mm. And so there was longer time between that flight and then the third flight. It was, it was 17 months um, because they would made changes to the engine. And for the first time, they were putting a bunch of customers on the rocket. Um, NASA had a small satellite. Um, the military had a small satellite. There were some commercial customers. It's like that was their big mission, right? They'd gone through their growing pains. They'd been tracking for their third launch to be a success the whole time. They put important customers on there. And then it goes up. And as we just talked about, the first and st- second stage collide, right? So he took a huge step backwards. And at that point, you know, Elon Musk had put $100 million into the company. That money was gone. Mm-hmm. And the, all of a sudden, the company's future was desperate. And then right before Flight 4, Eric, you wrote
0: that, this this would be the final attempt. So, so why did they enter it with the mindset of they wouldn't be trying again after the fourth flight?
1: Right. So they they were out of money um, with that fourth launch attempt, and they had they basically had had the parts for one more rocket, one more Falcon One. And so they they if if flight four had not been successful, they would have had no more parts, that had no more money, and no one would have wanted to give them any money because this would have been a company that failed four times. In trying to launch a simple rocket to orbit, and what would make you think that they would get it right on the fifth time, right, or the sixth time? And so, so you know, oh, and and oh, by the way, this was in 2008, at the point at which the Great Recession was starting to set in, and and venture capital funding was just drying up. You know, the, the amount of venture capital funding from 2008 to 2009, I think, dropped in half or even more. So, it was a terrible fundraising environment. It was a company that had a terrible technical background they had no money you know they didn't have a reserve of parts i mean they had to get to orbit or they would die it's amazing how sort of history works out because if one thing had gone differently
0: in in the sequence of events leading up to flight four like you said the company it sounds like would have been bankrupt and and who knows what you know elon musk would have done from there um whether or not he would have persisted so uh it's 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 really amazing that on september 28th two thousand eight. The Falcon one reached orbit on its fourth attempt. Um, And it was interesting because you wrote towards the end of the book that as happy as everyone was on the team and, and relieved Elon Musk was, was the farthest thing from it. He was actually even more stressed after the Falcon one finally reached orbit. So what was going on
1: there? Right. So we talked about, they were having financial troubles and because they'd failed three times, you know, they didn't have a long line of customers lined up to buy the Falcon one. And so even though they ultimately did reach orbit on that fourth flight, um, there was no there was no money coming in right and Elon Musk was tapped out because he'd put his other half of his PayPal money into Tesla and that company was financially strapped too so it's not like he could lean on Tesla to to, to fund SpaceX or vice versa um, but they had one chance, and that was you know this NASA contract that we talked about earlier in the podcast to, to this operational delivery of cargo to the international space station. And so Musk was stressed out of his mind because as he told me, even though that flight was successful, you know, they, they, they didn't have money and, you know, they were, they were look it was looking like they were going to be the company that go down to the first company to go down in history is sort of, well, they were successful, but then they failed. Mm-hmm. Um, but just a few months later, so that, that the launch was in September 28th of, of 2008, at the end of that year, NASA did award contracts. Um, and again, these were follow-up contracts, the, the contracts he had protested earlier um, um, in terms of cargo delivery. And, and so the SpaceX was in the game, and they got more than a billion dollars. And that funding led to the Falcon 9 and, and everything that's come since and and all the lessons all of the very hard engineering lessons that SpaceX learned from the Falcon 1 they were able to put in the Falcon 9 and that process went more smoothly in terms of development but the way Elon described it to me I thought it was very very telling um he described sort of that period at the end of 2008 as you know being led out um blindfolded to a firing squad being you know being put up the the rifles being raised at their head um, and then the gun's being fired, and then they go click. And, you know, the the bullet doesn't come out. And he said, then they take your, you know, they take your blindfold off. And he said, he said, on one hand, you know, it it, it was, it felt good. But on the other hand, you don't feel very great after going through all of that. Um, and so you know, there were several failure points, you know, we talked about between there were there was all kinds of drama between the third and fourth flight of the Falcon 1 rocket, Mm -hmm. then then that rocket could have failed. And then NASA could not, you know, may not have just come through with the funding may have gone with another company um, for that cargo contract. So at the end of 2008, and that's really where the majority of the book ends, it's sort of like, then they're on a, a much firmer footing heading into the future.
0: Yeah, it's almost like I I, I like to make baseball analogies on the podcast. Um, I don't know if you're, if you're a baseball fan, but it's yeah. like if 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 your team is leading by a run. And the other, and it's the bottom of the ninth inning and the other, the other team gets the the runner to third base and there's an error and and your team just barely squeaks out a victory. You feel good that you won, but you also sort of don't feel great about how you did it. You you know what I mean? I I think that sounds like what he was trying to, uh, to get at with the firing squad analogy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then it's, and, but then it was like your team went on a hundred game winning streak, right? Um, for SpaceX.
0: <laughs> exactly. And, and one of the other uh, repercussions of um, sort of the, the Falcon one getting to orbit and SpaceX receiving the funding is the emergence of other companies in the industry uh, that started trying to send out rockets into orbit. One of them obviously being uh, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin company. So how does, based on w- what you know, and I know you didn't write about it extensively in the book, but how does Blue Origin differ from SpaceX?
1: Blue Origin was actually founded before SpaceX um, in 2000, and they've taken a much different approach, Um, although Bezos has put a lot more money into Blue Origin and until recently hadn't been as aggressive about trying to win government contracts. Um, but Blue Origin has moved much more slowly. You know, they, they, They've launched their new Shepard system. This is small suborbital, meaning you go up and you come back down in a few minutes. They've never launched anything into orbit hmm. and probably won't for a couple more years. Um, they have a lot of potential to rival SpaceX, but they're really pretty far behind in terms of the launch industry. And it will be interesting to see now that be- Bezos has left Amazon, or is leaving Amazon, whether he seeks to move Blue Origin forward more quickly to try to catch up to SpaceX, or at least not fall further behind. And I think that goes back to um, back to Musk, who, you know, for me, the defining trait of him is this drive and determination he has push things forward. And and that means he ruffles feathers. You know, he, he, he runs a file of regulatory, regular regulators with the government. Right. I mean, he, 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 he calls them out. He's not nice in that regard. Um, he's extremely demanding of his employees, mm-hmm. um, but he gets results. I mean, both with Tesla, but then especially with SpaceX, I mean, the amount of things that they've achieved in the last decade um is, is, re- is, is really unparalleled, especially by a private company. And so, you know, if Bezos wants Blue Origin to catch up, he's really going to have to bring that same kind of determination to his company or they'll continue to fall behind because SpaceX has gotten to the point now where the, the kind of the meme in the industry is that they're a steamroller, mm-hmm. but they are a steamroller. They're just kind of, they have all this momentum and they're just moving forward.
0: But I mean, to, to their credit, uh, and, and this is something we've spoken about and, and, and you do a nice job um, detailing the book, it's not as if you know they they had any sort of uh, advantages or any you know they were granted anything favorable early on. They had to sort of work work up from nothing. Um, Elon Musk put all of his own money into the company and grew it from a team of himself and two employees into uh, the uh, you know the giant in the industry that that you describe. The last thing that I want to chat with you about is uh Elon Musk and SpaceX's uh long-term goal of actually colonizing Mars this is something that he's discussed at plenty uh wants to build a city there one day is this something that you think might be feasible I mean how how seriously is SpaceX actually looking at this goal
1: well first of all he and Blue, Blue Origin has a different goal they want to they want to focus more on the moon and ultimately build right. orbital settlements called uh, o'neill cylinders but (laughs) that would be a whole different whole different podcast but but they both share a similar ethos in that they think you've got to build big rockets that are reusable to sort of get lots of stuff into orbit as a starting point oh i I would say spacex is taking this goal extremely seriously musk has taken it seriously from day one and with his recent successes you know it's his people believe in him you know we a couple weeks ago the country celebrated landing the Perseverance rover on Mars, Mm -hmm. which was an enormous achievement um, by NASA. Um, But for as impressive as that landing was, you know, that the mass of that rover is one ton. And, you know, Musk estimates that to have a sustaining settlement on the city of Mars, and he and I have talked about this, you don't need one ton, you need, 1,000,000 1,000,000 tons. Huh. So that, you know, you took one of the best rockets in the world today, the Atlas V to get that whole spacecraft and, and all that to get one ton to the surface of Mars. Imagine doing 1,000,000 tons. I, I mean, the cost of the, you know, the cost of the Atlas V launch is probably a couple hundred million dollars. So, you know, can you spend trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars to do that on Mars? No, you can't. So you've got to bring the cost down and that's why they, they put all this effort into building Starship. Um, which is this massive reusable orbital rocket that if it is successful would be highly reusable and would fly enough that its cost would come way down and if they can get that system to work then they'll have the beginnings of a transportation system that can start to take millions of tons to mars or thousands of tons to mars but it'll still take an immense amount of work and i think that's one of the reasons why he moves so fast is because his lifetime is finite and the amount of work ahead of him is still so enormous if he's really going to pull this off
0: although with some of his other ventures uh like life extension and and sort of neuralink and and um i i don't i you know I, who, who knows who knows how long how long he'll be around and how long all of us will be able to work on these projects but i think you're right so so to clarify it's not something that you think might be feasible within our lifetimes
1: i think it's i think you could be have the beginnings of it in our lifetimes. Absolutely, I mean, you know, Starship could very well take the first humans to Mars in about a decade. Um, and then, if if the launch system is successful, and there's no reason to believe it won't, after they've done Falcon One, Falcon Nine, and Falcon Heavy, you know, then you have all of a sudden. Uh, the idea of a settlement on Mars doesn't be, stops becoming theoretical and, and becomes more practical once you have the transportation system. But that's just the first step. There's so much more after that, from legal and ethical and and sort of just psychological standpoints to to the actual life support and and all the. I mean, it's just it's a long list of things. But all of it's theoretical until you have the transportation system.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That's something I, I had on uh, professor Avi Loeb, um, mm. last month. Yeah. And then we were talking about, uh, sort of the, the psychological components of potentially living on another planet and, uh, you know, considering the existence of extraterrestrial life, all those, all those things to contemplate, but it is, I, I guess it was a little, uh, a, a little bit of relief to know that there are very smart people that, that are, are working towards this because, um, I don't I don't think that that the earth is sustainable uh at least in the long term. Uh, but I guess we'll we'll see what happens. We'll continue to monitor SpaceX and, and the aerospace industry. Eric, listen, this has been a terrific conversation. To all those listening, be sure to check out Eric's latest book, Liftoff, Elon Musk and the desperate early days that launched SpaceX. Um, Eric, I'm sure my listeners wanna know where
1: they can go to follow you and to learn more about your work and your publications. Um, my day job is as a space writer at Ars Technica, and you can find me on Twitter at SciGuySpace. And thank you just so much. I really enjoyed the conversation as well.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you, you taking the time. So that was my conversation with Eric Berger. Uh, it was definitely a treat to chat with him. Um, I, I don't, you know, uh, just for your reference, I, I don't have an engineering background, so I still don't have a, a perfectly nuanced understanding of, you know, the, the challenges of launching a rocket into orbit. But I think, I think I have, a, a decent grasp of it now after having spoken with him. There were also, you know, there were a number of things that I didn't even get to um, speak with Eric about in the interest of time. Uh, one of them, which was interesting that he wrote about in the book, is that in order to launch the Falcon 1 rocket, uh, SpaceX actually needed to travel to the island of uh, Kwajalein Atoll. That is part of, let's see if I can find it on a map, looks like it's part of the Marshall Islands um, off the coast of New Guinea uh, near the the North Pacific Ocean. Uh, And the reason why they had to uh, launch the rocket at Kwajalein Atoll has to do with sort of the the dialogue that they had with um, the Air Force uh, and I mean, you know, we, we did, we did sort of chat about this, the, how important it is to maintain a, a workable relationship with the U S government and with, uh, all the different regulatory agencies. And this is part of the reason why, right? The air force, um, decides when and where you can actually launch your rockets. And it looks like, um, there, there was competition from, uh, Lockheed Martin and other companies that wanted to, uh, launch rockets from, I guess the, Van- the Vandenberg sites, I guess, and I'm reading this, uh, I actually dug up an article from Space.com, August of 2005, SpaceX private rocket shifts to island launch, um, so yeah, they were they were squeezed out by Lockheed Martin and the Air Force from Vandenberg, California, uh, and having to move to Quage, which was the site of uh, the Falcon 1 launches early on, so it, it's, you know, that's just sort of an interesting detail um, that Eric speaks about in the book, about Another hurdle that the you know another hurdle of many that SpaceX had to grapple with is actually where deciding where to launch the Falcon One. Um, so I found that really fascinating. And just in terms of the you know the organizational culture, right? Like I, I we alluded to this in the conversation, um, but in the early years, you know, uh, Elon Musk demanded the impossible from his employees. Employees, most employees talked about working eighty-hour weeks, and there are folks at SpaceX who still you know discuss uh having to deal with with those you know the the hours there and the controversy about insufficient work life balance um and we talked about this in our conversation but when you tell Elon Musk that something is impossible he just he won't accept that there was actually an excerpt from Ashley Vance's book uh Elon Musk Tesla SpaceX and the Quest for a Fantastic Future where Vance wrote that if an employee tells Musk that a deadline is impossible or cost is impossible he will kick them off the job on the spot he will say Fine, you're off the project. I'm now the CEO of the project. I will do your job and be CEO of two companies at the same time. I will deliver it. But what's crazy, this is according to a, a senior SpaceX engineer, is that he actually does it. Every time that he fires someone and takes their job, he's delivered on whatever the project was, which, which, which is remarkable. Um, and it, it's, it just goes to show you that he sets these impossible, what he says, intentionally impossible goals. Um, but people meet them. You know he he brings he brings the best out of them. There's also something in the book which I found funny is Elon Musk is so efficient with his time that he actually pees fast. One engineer um, said that you know Elon Musk is when Elon Musk pees it's like a fire hose, three seconds and out. He's authentically in a hurry, so I found that to be uh, really funny as well. I didn't didn't want to ask Eric about. It. Elon Musk's bathroom habits. But, you know, he, he's relent- he's relentless in other areas too. And, and uh, Eric and I spoke about hiring and how he made an effort to personally interview the first 3,000 um, people at SpaceX, uh, which is, you know, impressive in its own right. But in addition, this is something we didn't get to chat about. In Liftoff, Eric talks about how when he finds an employee that he really likes, he will stop at nothing to recruit them. Uh, there's one excerpt from the book where he talks about how Elon Musk called Larry Page from Google. To get a prospective employee's wife moved to the Los Angeles office of Google so that her husband could come work for him at SpaceX. I mean for how many other companies can, can, can you say that their CEO would literally move heaven and earth in order to, to bring on one employee, You know, one, one cog in an otherwise uh, gigantic machine? And then, you know, later on, this is sort of the the epilogue to what happens after 2008 after Eric's book ends, there was discussion at SpaceX about whether or not the company should go public. And rather than just let the, you know, the employees stew over over what would happen, Elon Musk actually wrote an email to the company and he wrote, and, and this, this I think this is public information at this point, but it was also in Ashley Vance's book. He wrote that some at SpaceX who have not been through a public company experience may think that being public is desirable. This is not so. For those who are under the impression that they are so clever that they can outsmart public market investors and will sell SpaceX spot stock at the right time, let me relieve you of any such notion. If you think, ah, but I know what's really going on at SpaceX and that will give me an edge – you were also wrong. So it's it's you know as as Eric mentioned it's no bullshit. It's no bullshit he he you know communicates um directly and clearly and and I I guess there's something there's something to that, right? But something that I liked about Eric's book and reading some of the reviews of the book um seems like other people have picked up on is it wasn't just Elon Musk, right? Like it's easy to to pinpoint him and say, you know, he was the guy that made all this possible, and to some degree, yeah, he, he was largely responsible for uh, the success of SpaceX, but there were lots of other people who oftentimes don't get the recognition they deserve for being a part of this endeavor, such as uh, Tom Mueller, Hans uh, Koenigsman, uh, Gwyn Shotwell, all, all these people were appropriately credited in, in in liftoff, which was which was I think a a great way of telling the story of, of the company. And this doesn't even begin to tell the full story of, of SpaceX's development over the last um, ten years after after 2008 with with the you know Falcon One, because you know recently uh, the company launched the Falcon Heavy, giving it the world's most powerful rocket, and then the BFR, the the big Falcon rocket or big fucking <laughs> big fucking rocket, I think that's that's why he named it BFR, was renamed to the Starship, and the Starship is the the. Uh, rocket spaceship duo that that SpaceX has been building to uh, potentially ferry people to, to Mars at some point. Um, and it has the the booster stage named Super Heavy and a second stage referred to uh, Starship. So there's lots more that we can chat about with SpaceX. And then I, you know, I would love to also do an episode uh, delving into Tesla and how Tesla has disrupted the automobile industry and you know the impact that Elon Musk has had on that field as well. Um, so. This by no means is the end of our exploration of um, the Muskian endeavors, but uh, I thought it was a a great start and and I want to thank Eric for participating in the conversation. I hope you guys got a lot out of it. So next week, I'm going to be joined by Luke Burgess, the author of the book Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. We'll be exploring the issue of why we want the things that we want and how memetic theory is the engine of social media as well as why people should pick one desire to suffer over and let go of all lesser desires. So that's gonna be a really rich conversation um, that sort of jumps between psychology, Philosophy, neuroscience, technology, a lot of different applications for memetic theory. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. That's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thank you so much for listening, guys. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore, right to the pod via email, NervousHabitsPodcast at gmail.com, and you can watch full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast. And remember, next time you're making Pop-Tarts, make sure to put them in the oven, vertical side up, and not horizontally. You don't want to make the same mistake as the billionaire Elon Musk. Take care and stay nervous.